left you with a cliffhanger last week. Anybody solve the uh, who we who we were talking about? Anybody figure it out? All right. Well, we're going to get into Genesis chapter 26 is where we're going to be. As we begin this week, if you didn't catch it on Facebook, we gave you a little bit of a preview for things to come here. Does a Christian have the freedom to stand up for what they need in a work environment or a family situation? Or any other place where unreasonable demands are placed on us? Are we compromising our testimony by putting people in their place? Or perhaps pushing them further from the kingdom of God? Now, many times we are taught that to stand up for what we need or want in a work environment or any other place where unreasonable demands have been put on is selfish. And it's not godly. It's not what God wants us to do. Nor is it what the Word teaches us. So is this right? Now, there are a lot of examples of this in the Word. We're going to look at one in particular here. And that comes from Genesis 26. Last week, we were looking at a peacemaker. That a peacemaker is identifiable because they have maturity like one. They have actions like one. They have thoughts like one. They speak words like one. They seek solutions like one. And they are not moved by emotions like one. That is what a peacemaker is. They are mature. They have to have that maturity about them. Many Christians desire to be seen as a peacemaker and even may think that they are. But in God's view, what does he see? Now, we also saw that just because you are praying for peace, you might be speaking words contrary to it. And you are not necessarily seeking it just because you say you are. We've got to make sure that not only are we praying for peace in situations, but we've got, to think posit- we've got to think positive thoughts. If you are thinking contrary thoughts, if you're doing contrary things, or if you're pursuing one-sided solutions, you will not be a peacemaker in any situation that you're in. We left you with this. A peacemaker will first off discover threats because a person who's not in peace, a person who is unrest, feels threatened. The peacemaker will reveal what you see is wrong and unjust. They're going to point that out. They're going to find sustainable solutions and they will have consistent speech. So let's head on over here to Genesis chapter 26. In case you have not figured it out, the person that so many people I saw were consenting to see as one of the great peacemakers in the Word of God is Isaac. And I'll show you why they think it, and of course why I don't. But in this chapter, there is a peacemaker, and there is peace, but just not where they pointed it out. Here in Genesis chapter 26, there was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in a land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in the land. And I will will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. 
I will give to your descendants as the lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now when Abraham experienced the famine in this land, he decided to hightail it to Egypt, and I'm sure that Isaac knows the story. And he was probably thinking the same thing, so God specifically tells him, don't go to Egypt. You might think it's rough here. Don't go to Egypt. I want you to stay here. That's what he wanted him, wanted for Abraham. If you're here on Wednesdays, we're taking a look at that episode with, with him. Don't go down to Egypt. This is the land I gave you. I want you to stay here in this land. How many have ever been in a place where it seemed pretty dry? It seemed pretty tough. We want to hightail it out. We want to fly the coop. But that's not what God has said to do. Isaac, he's ready to go. God says, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. So uh, that's pretty clear. He's not supposed to go down there. So how much would your peace be disturbed if your food supply was dried up? Think about it. If we couldn't get any more food in the area here, how would you respond? Just think of it this way. All the grocery stores have empty shelves. No grocery stores have any food in the area at all. Not only Philadelphia, all Pennsylvania. And then it began to hit New Jersey. And then someone says Florida has food. And what, are you, what are you thinking about doing? So you've got to put this in where, you, where you're at. They have famine in the land. There's no food here, but there's food in Egypt. Well, let's just go down to Egypt. I mean, as soon as the famine's over, we can come back. But God says, uh-uh, that may seem like the, the nice solution. That's not the solution I want you to do. That's not the direction I want you to go. Don't do it. And the men of the place, verse 7, asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Where do you think he got that from? <laughs> he heard the story from Abraham. Apparently Abraham doesn't pass this story off in such a negative light. So that Isaac actually thinks that, oh, that seems like it was a, it was a feasible solution. I would love to be a fly on the wall when Abraham is telling this story to Isaac and his wife is right there. Maybe he didn't tell it when she was there. Because I don't think she would have been as pleased with this story as, as uh, maybe Abraham was. But Isaac, he seems to have a pretty good view of this story, so he decides, let's do the same thing that Abraham did. I mean, he studied alive. It seemed to work out okay for him. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window, and he saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife, so, why, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I have said, lest I die on her account. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So... Um, he saw them operating in such a, not a brotherly and sisterly way and decided that, uh, uh, you lied to me. That's not a real good way to, to have things go. He had been in there a long time. I don't know what a long time is. 
long time could be a couple months. Might have been a year. We don't know how long a long time was, but apparently he kept it from him for a little while. So here's the first question I have for you. Is deception the right thing to do to get people to be peaceful with you? Isn't this what he does? He wants peace. He wants it to be a peaceful environment where he's going. So this is what we'll do. We will deceive them. We will tell them things that aren't true. And we look at this and we say, hmm, that's obviously not a way that we should go. But do we do this ourselves? If you have been at work, how many of you, don't raise your hand on this, just use your inside hand. But how many of you have been at work and they're doing something there that you have an idea on the inside how to fix it, how to make it go better? But you don't feel like it's an environment that you can share it. And so you're sitting around with people and the boss says, we're going to do this. And you're thinking, that is not going to work. I don't think we should do that. I don't like it, whatever it might be. And so he says, what do you all think? And you say nothing. What have you done? You've said something that's not true in order to preserve the peace. Because you think that the way to preserve the peace is to say something that's not true. Maybe at work they said, hey, does everybody agree that we should do this? And we're thinking, mm-mm. But what do you do? Well, everybody else wants to do it. I guess we'll go ahead. How are we different from Abraham? How are we different from Isaac? We're holding the truth back. We're being a little bit deceptive. And sometimes I've heard people that have done this at work, something has gone on, and is everybody okay with this? Everybody, yeah, 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 everybody's nodding their head. And then they go out from there, that's it, I'm looking for another job. I'm going to find, I'm not putting up with this. But you see, you've been deceptive. Deceptive is not the way to go. A peacemaker does not choose the way of deception. What, they, what you've got to do is figure out, is this something that I am willing to take on? Is this something I'm willing to stand for? If it's not, then table it. Put it out of your mind. But you've got to figure out which way that you're going to go. So, he decided deception. This is sometimes what we do too. How about in a family situation? I'm sure no one here has ever been in a family situation in which you misrepresented your feelings in the family situation in order to preserve peace. Hearing some laughter. How, how much easier is it in a family situation than when they say something, well, I'm just not going to, I don't want to cause trouble. I'm just not going to say anything. So the way to peace is deception. I'm going to let them think I go along with this. I'm not going to tell them what I really feel. Now, you don't always have to pick a fight. You know, I have some relatives that don't agree with me on everything. And um, sometimes, you know, you get into a room with them and they're saying something and they're trying to pick a fight. I sometimes just look on and says, well, you know I don't agree with you, but let's go on. I don't have to lie to them. I don't have to pick a fight with them. You already, we've already had these discussions. You already know I don't agree with you. But let's move on. But so, see, sometimes we're not always willing to do that. In a family situation, we have at times practiced deception in order to keep the peace. Deception is, I'm just going to keep some truth here, just kind of under wraps. No one needs to know she's my wife. 
You're not going to marry any of them. We just won't, uh, we just won't reveal that a little bit. Well, deception, this is not a peacemaker. In fact, actually, if you have somebody who's practiced deception, kept you from things, it uh, generally causes people to get a little bit more warlike once they find out what's going on. Now, verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. I love this verse. <laughs> the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. <laughs> In other words, he was doing really good. He was sowing, he was reaping, and being blessed. But he began, if you are going to prosper, you have to begin. There has to be a beginning of prosperity. He began to prosper, he continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. People will envy what God blesses you with, and not just unsaved people. Born again Christian people are capable of envy. I can prove it to you. When the Word of God says, don't envy. Is he saying that to believers or unbelievers? He's saying it to believers, isn't he? Why do you have to exhort believers to do something that they won't do? Believers can become envious of the things you have. Not only of possessions, they'll be envious of your peace. They'll be envious of the love that you walk in. They'll be envious of the stability that you have. They'll be envious of the faith that you have. They'll be envious, envious of the confidence you have. The wisdom the understanding of God's Word. There's all kinds of things they can become envious of. But here we see that he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now we're going to see here in these, these verses they actually come to grow to, to hate him. And they were at odds with him. Remember, remember in uh, Proverbs 16, 7? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Right now, we're not having a whole lot of peace going on here with, with Isaac. He's got a lot, of, uh, a lot of things not going on so well. But we're going to see this verse in practice. We're going to see this verse unfold. We'll come back to that. Now, it's not just that the Lord blessed him. But it was the, the Lord was with him. They saw that the Lord was with him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them in with earth. <clears throat> now they did this because they envied him. There is no good reason to fill in a well. Wells dug. <laughs> they usually have a, a nice little uh, area around it, keep anybody from falling in it. The only reason that you do this is because you're envious of them or you hate them. You dislike them somehow, somehow, but people were forming evil plans against them. Have you ever had people form evil plans against you at the workplace? Folks, this is Isaac's workplace. This is where he goes to work. This is where he takes care of his flocks. This is where he takes care of his herds. 
This is where he shows up every day in the morning. This is where he comes home from at night. This is his workplace. At his workplace, he's got people around him that want to fill in his wells. They envy him. They hate him. They don't like him. Got to feel a little bit threatened here. But people will form evil plans against you. If they envy you or what you have, if you stand in their way, or you have what they want. You've got a position at work they want, they're going to come after you. If you stand in the way of them getting what you want, or what they want, they're going to come after you. If they're just envious of you, they're probably going to find a way to come after you. But they are not likely to exert a whole lot of effort against you if there is nothing for them to gain. Most people don't just come up with evil plans against random people. Most. I didn't say all, but most people just don't do this. You're not worth the effort. There's not going to get anything. Now you say, well, bullies will. Yeah, but bullies gain a feeling of strength and superiority when they do it. So they have something to gain. You may not have something to give them, but they have something to gain from it. Verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now, Abimelech here, he seems to respect the strength of Isaac, but that does not seem to translate into thinking Isaac will use it. How do you know that? Well, if you are the Philistines and you saw Isaac as having a lot of strength and were thinking he might use it against you, you wouldn't be filling up his wells. You wouldn't be going over there and putting earth in all the wells that they've been using. Abraham dug them. He's the son. He's on the same area that Abraham was working. He's still using the same wells. He comes over to use his well and it's all filled in. And he comes over to use another well and it's all filled in. They filled in all the wells of Abraham. So they know he has great strength, but they don't think he's going to use it. If you don't use the strength that you have, then the people around you aren't going to respect it. Same thing with the enemies that we face. The enemy of, the, of, uh, of God's kingdom. They might know or think that you are mighty, but if they don't think that you will use it or know how to use it against them, they will not respect it. Verse 17, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So he went on out. They had stuffed all these things with earth, filled in these wells. So he decided now we need them. We need to go out there and dig them. So he dug the, the wells again. Now we dig a well today. What you do is you call up the company. We've got one of them right up the road from here. And you say, hey, I need a well. And they come on over with a truck with a big drill bit on it. And they just drill on down to where the water is. And once they're there, they set up a pump. And they pump the water up to you. And uh, you don't have to break a sweat. But that's not how it was in these days. They didn't have any drill bits. They didn't have any gas-powered trucks to come on out. So the only way that they could get a well is to get in there with a shovel and dig it. That's some work. I mean, we're not talking about... Uh, a two-foot deep hole. We're not talking about a ten-feet deep hole. 
We're talking sometimes these, these uh, wells go down 40 feet, 50 feet, 60 feet. You've got to keep going until you hit the water. We know from the Bible that some wells were deeper than others. But uh, he says to him, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. He didn't go that far. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abram his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. So this is a brand new well. They decided to dig in a certain spot and as they dug they found water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rahabath because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now the reason that some people think that he is such a, uh, a noble peacemaker is because he didn't stand up for himself. Because when people came and tried to make a fight with him, he just went off and, and did something else. Oh, if you guys want the well, all right, you can go ahead and have it. And he goes over here and he digs this well. Oh, if you guys want this well too, all right, you can have it. And so he goes over and he digs this well. Then when he digs this well, they don't want that one. Now, we don't know if this well was worse off or better off than the other ones. We just know that they didn't contest over it. So it may be that uh, they got enough wells. Uh, you know, we got Isaac to dig these couple of wells here for us. That's, uh, that's good enough. But here you got this guy. He went over and he dug the wells of Abraham that the Philistines had filled in. And then they chased him out of that particular area. And so he went over to uh, the valley. And he gets over in the valley, he starts digging a well. And the people there are chasing him out. No, no, we want that well. That's our well. What do you mean it's your well? We dug it. We put all the work in. They didn't say anything about it until he gets all the way down there and finds water. Then when he finds water, oh, now you got something we want. So they come over and we take it. That's our water. How's it your water? We dug the well. All right, fine, you have it. And he goes over and he digs another well. Oh, no, 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 we want that one too. Have you ever had people over at work who you do all the work and they come in and take the credit? Does it get you mad? Does it get you feel like, you know, a little voice says on the side, now be a Christian. Be a, don't lose your Christianity. Walk in love. All right, you know, if they want to take the credit for it, that's fine. I'll let my work speak for myself. And then we go on off and we, we go over and we find another project to do and we get all the work done on that project. And then they come on over and they take credit on that one too. Well, all right, you know, we, we want to be peaceful. I don't want to lose my Christian testimony. Um, God put me here in this place and I want to be a good witness and I want to be able to, you know, be a peacemaker. He, he's going to bless the peacemakers and I, I'm not going to make waves. If they want to take credit for it, then that's fine. You know, eventually I'm sure people will find out who did, uh, who did the work. But it doesn't seem to be making any difference. Finally, he gets one. And they don't contest over it. And he says, this is his interpretation. The Lord has made room for us. Hmm. Is that the right interpretation? That's what the Bible says. 
Is that the right interpretation? We're going to come back to that. Now, what effect did this appeasement have on the people of the land, Philistines and the people there? What effect did it have when he appeased them and he doesn't do anything to them when they fill in the wells? What effect does it have on them when he redigs the wells and they chase them out of the land? Those wells are still there that he redug. Who's using them now? What effect does it have on these people when he digs these wells and they take them? Do they all come to him and say, We've never seen someone who responded so kindly to us coming and taking your stuff. Um, can we get saved? They're not doing that, are they? So maybe you can relate to this story in your workplace. Maybe you can relate to this story in your family. Have you ever had family members who take credit for things they didn't do? Who push things off on you that you didn't do? Common thing Christians think, just give people what they want and they won't get mad at you. Well, Isaac gave them what they wanted, and then they decided they wanted more. Now, just because the request is unreasonable, even outlandish, doesn't mean they will not ask for it or expect it. How many of you learned that to be true in your workplace? How many found out that some people can make some outlandish requests and feel no problem in asking it? And you would sit there saying, I would never ask that of somebody. And here they are, they just feel perfectly fine asking this. How many have ever had family members who have made some out, outlandish requests? Things that you would be embarrassed about to ask. And here they are asking you, well, I guess I should just do it so that we can, you know, keep the peace. Oh, that's, that's fine. You know, we'll go on vacation together and I'll pay for all the stuff. And, and, and I'll cook all the meals. And I'll drive everybody around who has to be driven around. And you just, you just relax and have a good time. And if you try and make them do anything at all, well, you don't know how hard it's been for me. I really need this vacation. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we go on. And see, the Christian way to do it is what? Well, just give in to what they want. Now, you're just being a good Christian testimony. I'm going to prove to you today that that is wrong. I don't mean it's my opinion. I'm going to prove to you today that that viewpoint is wrong. And that's why many Christians have trouble. This story right here is all we need. We don't even need to go anyplace else in the Word of God, though we could. So if people stop fighting with you, is the Lord making room for you? Or are they just getting tired of fighting with you? Did they just get all the stuff that they need? Verse 23, then he went up from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzas, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. I want you to notice this. He says to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me? And they don't deny it. They don't say, Oh, it's not that way. <laughs> yes, it is. You hate me. Look at the things you've done. And he calls them on it. At least he does that. 
Why are you here? What is it you're trying to get after me now? Maybe he's finally hit the, the, the limit of how much he wants to dig wells for other people. Here's somebody else. What is it? There's no well diggers where you are? You need us to come out there and dig some more wells? You might be thinking stuff like that. We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Really? You haven't done anything but good? Would anyone here want to contest that? I mean, surely you have not seen this in family members who have been abusive, who have been nasty, who have been unreasonable, and they come to you and they say, we haven't been unreasonable. We haven't been mean. Have you ever had that, people? And you're thinking, were we in the same room last week? I mean, did we have the same conversations? I think Isaac's got to be, be thinking this. Wait, you didn't do me any wrong? What about all those wells that we dug? What about chasing me out of the land? What about that? Oh, we did nothing but good for you. We didn't do any harm. All right, well, you didn't punch me. You didn't kill any of my servants. Guess you have that going for you. Now, it says here that you will do us no harm would seem to indicate that they are now afraid of him. They're afraid that he might come and do them some harm. Now, how have they seen that the Lord has blessed them? They must have seen that, that he just keeps prospering. His stuff just keeps growing. And they can't explain it any other way except that the hand of God is on him. And if the hand of God is on him, it might be that eventually God defends him. That God stands up and does things for him. And we don't want that. So what we need to do is we need to come and make peace with Isaac so that his God doesn't come after us. Because the harm they fear is not what Isaac would do because so far Isaac has not done a thing. What they fear is we cannot deny that the hand of God is on you. We worship God. They don't do for us what your God is doing for you. And he might get upset at the way we have treated you. And so... Let's make peace. As long as you are happy with us, as long as we have a treaty with you, hey, maybe he, uh, maybe he won't come after us. So he made them a feast. And they ate and drank. Now you probably can't relate to this, but could you imagine having people in your life who treated you harshly, treated you disrespectfully, and then it came to their benefit to come over and make peace with you, and they do, and then they sit back while you make them dinner. And they eat your food. And they drink your stuff. And then they leave. So they made them a feast. They ate and drank. And then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. So Isaac's the great peacemaker, right? <laughs> it came to pass that same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. And so he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took 
as wives, Judith, the daughter of Bari, the Hittite, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and his parents, you know, they, they didn't like that at all. Isaac was not too fond of that, that direction. But peace is obtained because they, those that made war, found it in their best interest to make peace. That's how peace was attained. The people who made war found it in their best interest. You will find sometimes that family members will come knocking on your door to make peace because for some reason they now find it in their best interest to do so. You will find people at work who have suddenly decided that being at peace with you is in their best interest. Maybe they want you to join up with them to stand up against something that's happening at work. That's why they do it. It's in their best interest to do so. Now remember that verse of Scripture that we looked at in Proverbs. When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. And we talked about that before, that it's, and we showed you a couple of translations that do it the same way, that it's not God making them make peace. I was listening to a, to a, a preacher, I, I like this preacher, but he was, he was preaching on this, and he got to this verse and used this verse, and he went on it the same way that all the other things had done. That uh, when a man's ways please the Lord, God will turn hearts, he will do things, he will make. What was really funny about this, listening to this one, is that 15 minutes before, in the very same message, he said that God will not make people get born again. He said if God was going to make people do anything, this is his word, if God was going to make people do anything, he'd make them get born again. But he won't do that. And therefore, he won't do the other thing. But then he gets to this verse, and he goes off, and now I'm thinking, you just contradicted yourself there. You're saying that God won't make people do things, but apparently God will make make uh, peace here. Hmm. That's not quite the, the way that it ought to be. No. When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies will find it to be a peace with them. Because, you see, they found it in their best interest to make peace with Isaac. Now, remember, I told you there's a peacemaker in the chapter. We already read over him. Maybe you saw it. So here's a question for you. Does appeasement work. Isaac went this way. He went the way of appeasement. He went the way of deception. And he struggled with peace. Didn't quite have it the the way that he wanted. He kind of struggled with it. We have people today in their Christian walk that are trying to make peace with God in some of these very faulty ways. They're trying to do things in the area of deception And they're trying to do things in the area of appeasement to have peace with God. You cannot do this. How in the world can we, how can we deceive God? Have you ever had a prayer with God and told him half the story? Told him the story and made yourself look a little bit better? God, I don't understand why they're coming against me. I haven't done anything wrong with them. I've just, I've been loving on them. And God sat up there and saying, (laughs) I was watching this. That's not quite exactly the way it happened. We practice deception sometimes in our prayers and we try and tell God a side that didn't actually happen. Or we try and pitch to God what our heart should have been like, what we were trying to tell people our heart was like, but on the inside we know we were angry, we were mad. But I didn't let anybody see that, so I don't have to necessarily come clean on God with that. 
We try and practice deception. There's also appeasement. You know, a lot of people try and do appeasement in their prayers. We a lot of times make prayers for no other purpose than to make peace with God. I'm praying things even though the Word of God does not tell me to pray it simply because I want there to be peace. Look at it this way. Somebody comes to you. You know they're out of fellowship with God. You know they're a born-again believer. Out of fellowship with God. And because of being out of fellowship and going the way that they should not go, they're hitting rock bottom. And they come to you. Will you pray with me? All right, come on, let's pray. I don't know, maybe God will do something. See, we're appeasing. Because I'd rather not stand up there and talk to that person and say, you're hitting rock bottom because you've turned your back on God. Let me show you the verses, verses of Scripture that tell Israel, if you forsake me, if you go a different direction, this is the results they're going to have. You're having those results in your life right now. What you need to do is repent of these things and get them right. And you'll find that your life will change. But you see, I'd rather go the way of appeasement. There's times that we have, uh, we have prayed. Have you ever had somebody come to you and they say, will you pray with me on this? I'll bet you that you don't ask them this question <laughs> too often. But if a person comes to you and they say, will you pray with me on this matter? I need to be healed. Oh, yeah. Come on, let's pray. Oh, man, we've got to be careful with this sort of stuff. See, we're doing appeasement. Well, let's pray. We don't, you know, another time, throwing the prayer out there to God. Who knows? One of these times we might actually hit it. That's kind of what we think of sometimes. We need to be careful about prayers of appeasement. I'm either trying to appease the person asking me, even though I shouldn't pray for this, I'm not, we're not in the position to pray for this, or I'm trying to appease God. I'm praying for something because I want God to say that I'm coming to Him and I'm praying, but God didn't tell me to pray this way. His Word did not exhort me to pray this way. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. One of the, uh, I've told this story a number of times here. I'll tell it to you again. Every once in a while here, people can learn from, from this story. Brother Hagen had some of the best stories. If I could find this on video, I would put it up there on the Monday teaching and said so you go hear him tell it. I'd much rather hear you hear him tell it than me. This was probably the most moving story I ever heard, and it's one of the first ones I ever remember him telling. It's so moving, I remember where I sat in class on the day he told the story. I can see myself sitting in the classroom while he told the story. Totally floored me. Knocked me on my socks. I still do, to this day, 40-some years ago, I heard this story. To this day, when I hear this story being told, I drop everything I'm doing to hear it again. Because Brother Hagin's stories, I can learn things from this. And this is the Sister Gray story. How many remember Sister Gray? A couple of people remember. Sister Gray's story taught me some things about prayer. And he, he says this. If you ever hear him tell the story, he says it with a little bit of remorse. Because you can tell he wished he would have done something different. But he didn't. And so usually when he tells this story, he starts off by saying, I wasn't as bold in these days as I am now. I think he wished he would have been a little more bold. But he talks about the story. He was in this church. They had invited him to come and speak. He came to speak. And I believe it was the first night of the conference that they were doing. They were there for a, for a while. He said the worship team was, was coming. If you ever hear Brother Hagen talk about the things that go on in the worship service, it is kind of funny to hear him talk about it. He calls it the preliminaries. <laughs> That's what it is. 
you know, they're doing all the preliminaries, you know, worship, offering, stuff like that, all the, all the stuff you have to get out of the way until we get to the good stuff. <laughs> I don't know if that's his attitude. It just comes across that way. He's always talking about the preliminaries. But he said they're, they're doing the preliminaries, and he was up there on the stage, sitting up there with, because um, uh, he was, uh, was going to be taking the, the, the service in just a little bit. So he's sitting up there on the stage, and he said, I, I was, can see out in the congregation, and I'm watching, and I saw this lady come in late into the worship service and come up to the pastor. The pastor was sitting down in the front row in the congregation, front row, sitting down there, and he came up and whispered something to the pastor. And so after the worship service was, was over, the pastor came up to introduce Brother Hagen, but before he did that, he said, Sister so-and-so just came in and told me that Sister Gray has turned terribly sick. And the doctor doesn't think she's going to make it through the night. So let's all pray together and ask God that he would heal her and make her well. So the whole church got together and prayed and spoke to her body and claimed healing for her. And then at the end, the pastor said, this is what the pastor said, how many believe that it's done? Everybody raised their hand. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's done. It's done. And so then they went on and had the service. Next night, they come into the service. Brother Hagin says it kind of unfolded the same way. He's up there on stage. He's looking out amongst the congregation. This same lady comes in late to the service, in the, in the middle of the worship service, comes up, whispers something to the pastor. And then after the worship service is over, the pastor comes up to the stage and he takes the podium and he says, Sister Gray made it through the night. The doctors didn't think that she would, but she made it through the night, and it looks like she's through the worst part of it now. But, he said, her body is still terribly weak. Let's pray together that God will do a complete work and that she will be, she will be fully healed. So the whole church, they got together and they all started praying. And he said it was, it was the most real thing he had ever heard. He said it was so real, I turned around to see who was behind me. He said a voice came from behind me and this is what it said. That's it. They've taken her out of my hands now. She'll be dead in three days. He turned around to see and there was nobody there. Now he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't tell anybody about that. And he said three days later, Sister Gray was dead. And then he began to teach about this and tell us. He said, this is what the Lord was teaching him in this. He said, through prayer, people can put others in the hands of God. And through prayer, you can take them out. You see, they prayed for a complete work on the first night and they all agreed that it was done but her body was still terribly weak well you put your body through that kind of an ordeal it's going to be weak it just needs to 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 strengthen up and that's really all that she had to do but they interpreted that god did not do a complete work like they had asked for but i've always hung on to those words i'm careful through prayer you can put people into the hands of god and through prayer you can take them out so many times when people come and they ask me to pray, and I'm sure that some of you do this too, would you pray with me? What have you prayed so far? What have you asked for so far? 
What have you done so far? What scriptures are you standing on? We ask questions like this. Not because I'm trying to find a reason not to pray, but I don't want to pray in such a way as to take something out of God's hands that was just put into it. Sometimes we just need to stand on those things that are, that are there. You know, if you're going to go and have something, uh, if you have something going on in your body, and you go over to this person, uh, sister, will you pray with me on this? And they pray with you on this. And then you go over here, and you begin to tell the whole situation like nothing changed. Will you, will you pray with me on this? And they pray with you on this. And then you come on over here to this person, and you tell them the whole situation like nothing has changed. Have you really believed that prayer has done anything? Or are you just doing prayer for appeasement? We're not really cutting through. We're not really doing anything. Believe that your prayers are powerful. Pray for the things you are supposed to pray for and speak to the things you are to speak to. Don't pray for the things that you are to speak to and don't speak to the things you are to pray for. Understand, through the Word of God, the difference and walk in what you are to walk in. We oftentimes will do things in our spiritual life to make appeasement with God or have appeasement with the people that are around us. We don't do the things that are necessary. Did anybody see the peace that was here? I'm going to take you back over to verse 18. Verse 18, And Isaac dug again the wells of the water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. There's your peace. There's your peace. Everything you need to know about peace is right there. There is quarrel. There is war. There is bad feelings about these about water about what they needed the water. Water is a big thing for what they need out there. When Abraham was here, did the Philistines fill in the wells? Why did the Philistines not fill in the wells when Abraham was here? <laughs> I'll give you a real good reason. Five kings couldn't stand before Abraham. What do you think they're thinking? We're not filling in those wells. Come over and kill us. We fear for our life. We're not touching those wells. As soon as Abraham dies, what do they do? They fill in the wells. Why? Because they feared Abraham. They do not fear Isaac. They know he has great strength, but they do not fear him. He may have great strength, but they don't think he will do anything with it. So we can just go over here and stop up your wells. And then other people, they see that. When you dig a well, we're just going to go over here and take it. And when you dig another well, we're just going to come over here and take it. The reason they do it is because Isaac won't stand up to them. Peace comes because Abraham was strong. President Reagan had this quote that he would say, Peace through strength. Peace through strength. Now, I'm going to give you some examples here. Some are from the Word and some are not. How did World War II come to an end? Because one side decided, you know what, I like peace better. 
No. How did it come to an end? Because one side became stronger than the other. And there was no strength left in the other side to fight. They didn't have peace because they liked each other. They had peace because there was no more strength. Why did Egypt allow Israel to leave peacefully? Is it because they suddenly liked them? Is it because Israel suddenly became strong? No. Their God had beaten Egypt into submission. God declared war on Egypt with ten plagues. And after the tenth one, God even said, after the tenth one, they're going to drive you out of the land. And they did. They drove them out. Why? Because it was in Egypt's best interest to get rid of them. After the Red Sea incident, why doesn't Egypt ever gain strength enough to come after Israel? Because they were beaten. Man, if God's going to show up and throw water at us like that. Why did the Midianites stop raiding Israel in the book of Judges? Because Gideon won a big battle over them and took their strength away. Why did the nations that made war against Israel and Judah stop making war? Because they were defeated. Jehoshaphat had a great victory that God brought about. Other ones had a great victory because they went in and did what God said. And God brought about a victory through their swords and through their spears. But the only way that Syria, the only way that the Philistines, the only way that Edom, the only way that Egypt, the only way that all these nations stopped making war is when they lost the war. How was peace achieved in the, in the account in the book of Esther? The strength was taken out of the enemies. How does peace come after the Ezekiel battle against Israel? Remember, there's a peace treaty that's going to come after the Ezekiel battle? How does it come? Because they were soundly defeated. It had no strength. And if you look at how everything plays out, more than likely three kings fall. Antichrist takes over that spot. Peace is achieved. Seven-year peace treaty that it only held for three and a half years. It came because strength was exerted. How does God bring peace at the end of the tribulation? End of the tribulation period? How does God bring peace? Does he come into the place and he just said, now everybody, let's play nice. Does he do that? What's God come, what does Jesus Christ come down to this earth at the end of the tribulation? What does he come down to this earth with? An army. And he defeats the enemy. When Satan rose up and rebelled against God, what did God do to him? There was war in heaven and Satan and his angels were defeated. That's in the Bible. At the end of the millennial reign, thousand years of peace, the devil is released to deceive the nations. He deceives some and they come towards New Jerusalem to fight against them. How does God defeat them? He makes war with them. And he defeats them. There are so many accounts 
that peace is achieved by taking the strength out of the enemy. But the enemy has sowed this thought into so many Christians. The way to peace is to be weak. The way to peace is to not stand up for what you have. That's the way that you get the peace. Abraham had peace in his day. Why? Because Abraham was stronger than anybody else. You're not going to mess with Abraham. You mess with Abraham, you're going to lose. Don't mess with Abraham. And then they saw Isaac coming up and they could tell. I mean, you can tell certain leaders. We've had certain leaders in, the, in our country. You can tell certain ones. Well, they're not going to be very strong. Not going to be a whole lot of strength there. Well, this one, uh, <laughs> this one, hmm. This one's going to be strong. You know, way back in my, my day when I was going, first going to college, and Jimmy Carter was, was up there. I, Jimmy, I don't mean to talk, but Jimmy Carter's a nice guy. He is a nice guy. He was a Christian guy. He had a lot of good attributes about him. It's just being a leader probably wasn't his, his best suit. Not everybody's make, is cut out for that. And many people saw that, and so you had the Ayatollah who took the hostages for 444 days, was it? Do you remember? Something like that. 444 days, our guys were held hostage. And, and then Reagan's coming on the scene, and they knew if, if he comes on the scene, he's going to do something. See, you can have a mighty military and not use it, and people won't be afraid of it. And we have a mighty military, but you have to be willing to use it. I heard, heard this uh, talked about. You may not know about this, because you know, we talk about all the, all the stuff in war that's going on, that probably our best submarine in the United States, our best submarine, is about the third largest submarine made. There are two others bigger. And we might be thinking, oh, man, that, that means they're stronger. Uh, no, I believe it's an Ohio-class submarine. And I believe, if I remember the numbers right, I think we have eight. Eight Ohio-class submarines. might be a, a few more than that, but I think it's eight. One is always in refuel, and the other seven roam. They roam by themselves. No one is with them. They don't have, they're not with the fleet. They are by themselves. One Ohio-class submarine can pretty much annihilate an entire country. One. They never have to surface. They never have to expose their position. One can take out about 26 cities. Take them out. One. You put all of our seven together, we can destroy the world just with our submarine. Now, you see, if, if this is one of the deterrents. Other nations have some similar, not quite as powerful as our Ohio-class submarines, but they have one similar, and they keep some of their, their ballistic missiles on their submarines. So even if we shot their, the silos out in the land, we don't know where the submarines are. That's one of the biggest deterrents to world war is the submarine fleet. Because they don't know where ours are. And we don't know where theirs are. So we can't take them out until they have fired all their missiles. That's one of the biggest deterrents that's out there. But you have to, as the commander-in-chief, you have to have the, the audacity to use it. Jimmy Carter did not. Ronald Reagan, they felt like, did. Whether he would have or not, you know, it makes no difference. They felt like he would. And so when he came on the scene, they decided we were going to release these hostages. <laughs> you remember that whole thing that was, was going on? I remember it well because I didn't have a mustache uh, before the hostage crisis. 
and I started growing it during the hostage crisis. And my roommate, uh, Bob, he was teasing me about it. He says, uh, we're going to write a letter to the Ayatollah and tell him Steve Hecht is not going to shave off his mustache until you let him go with the hostages. <laughs> and, well, I've never, never shaved it off since then. <laughs> but that's, uh, if the enemy doesn't think you will stand up to them, they will do all kinds of stuff. Now, how many, how many Hallmark movie fans do we have? How many people do not watch Hallmark movies? We're going to get the rest of you saved. We're going, we're going to <laughs> no, I mean, they're going in a, in a direction. I like the old Hallmark movies far more than the, the, the new one. The old ones, I, I still I put them on reruns just because I, I enjoy them. But anyway, if you watch the old Hallmark movies, and you, you, they always have the thing in the workplace, and the hero or the heroine in the, in the movie is always being abused by somebody at the workplace. They're taking advantage of them. They're using their ideas. Not every movie is that way, but there's a lot of them. They use their ideas and they, oh, well, you know, they, they, hey, they probably didn't mean to and, and all that sort of stuff. And until you get through the movie and they decide to stand up to the people that were doing this, the movie doesn't change. Their life doesn't change. But as soon as they decide to stand up, what happens? Good things happen. See, there's power through strength or there, there's, there's peace through strength. This is a principle that you're going to see in the secular world. This is a principle that you saw in the heavens. This is a principle that God utilizes here on the earth. He did it over and over in, as far as Israel was concerned, and he's done it many other ways as well. He uses strength to get peace because God knows I desire peace. If I am the strongest one on the scene, what I want goes. If you're not the strongest one on the scene... You don't set the rules. You have a family that is out of control. It's because you have a mom and dad who are not the strong ones in the family. The kids are. And the kids run the house. And that's why there's not peace. Haven't you thought of that? How many times have you thought, you see this family, they are completely messed up, and you keep thinking, that kid needs a spanking. <laughs> that kid needs to, to lose some privileges. Why? Because you realize if you don't exert strength, you won't change the situation. Somehow, we have that understanding, we have that mentality, but people have hit us with it so much and for so long that I think that here in the workplace, if I am not the person that people can walk all over, if I am not the person that will just take whatever junk people wants to throw my way and just smile and be a Christian, that I can't change my workplace. The devil loves you to have this mentality because he knows as long as you have that, you don't change nobody. And though we have countless examples of the Word of God where God was the one exerting the strength, where David was the one who exerted the strength, where Moses was the one who exerted the strength. He had, Moses had two to four million rebellious people under his care. Why did they not rebel and just throw his, his, um, himself off the, uh, the, the cliff there? Why did they not do that? Because <laughs> they were afraid. Because God was behind this guy. And if we mess with him, we've seen what God has done to some people. Now we're going <laughs> to... People respond to strength. Now, here's the question. You all ready for another cliffhanger? 
I hope I've shown you just through this one chapter. There's other places in the Scripture we could show you this too, but I hope in this one chapter you have seen that without strength there is no peace. You need to be strong. You've got to be on the Abraham side, not the Isaac side. That's where you got the peace. I'll give you this one too. Remember Moses and Aaron? Moses goes up to the mountain. What happens down on the mountain? Down at the base of the mountain. Chaos. Why? Because Aaron's in charge and Aaron's not as strong. Moses comes back down. What happens immediately? Order. Why? Because the strength has returned. When Aaron was there, we can play do whatever we want. In fact, they even killed one guy. They killed her. And then Aaron just goes along with them because they exerted more strength than he had. Moses comes down. What y'all doing? He makes them eat their gold. Because Moses was strong. If you want to bring peace into your family, if you want to bring peace into your workplace, if you want to bring peace any place in your life where peace is not there, you have got to exercise some strength. The question is not, how does peace come in these situations? The question is, can a Christian bring about peace this way and still hold to godly virtues? Can a Christian be strong when your family is nuts? Can a Christian be strong in the workplace when they are abusive? When they take advantage of you? Can a Christian be strong and maintain their Christian values? Maintain their Christian testimony? That's really what the question is. To me, there is no question how you get peace. You get peace by being strong. If you've got two people on the parking lot fighting, one's a bully, one's a a poor soul who's being picked on by the bully, when does the bully stop? When someone comes along who exerts their will over the bully. If that person wants peace in this situation, they come in and they take your hands off them and they don't, and they take them, they take them out. Think Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris comes on the scene. Uh, we're, we're just going to take them all out. <laughs> oh, well, it's movies, but, but still, he comes in to defend the person who was weak. The only way we're going to restore peace is for someone to be strong. How can I, as a Christian, be strong with my family? How can I, as a Christian, be strong in my workplace? How can I, as a Christian, be strong in my neighborhood? How can I, as a Christian, be strong with other Christians? Not fall into the area of deception, not fall into the area of appeasement, but how do I, with strength, overcome what is evil, overcome what is not peaceful in order to bring peace in that situation. And that's what we're going to look at next week. How can I do this? We all know the way. But see, the problem is, I, I know that's the way, and I know that'd be better, but I feel like I'm hurting people. I feel like I'm leaving a bad example. I feel like this isn't, this isn't going to be helpful. It's just better if I just take it. But it's not. Well, glory to God. I hope this helped you some today. We will get into that next week.
take a look at some of these these things that are there. Would you all stand up with me? Glory to God. Hallelujah. Father, you've shown us countless times in the Word that those that are evil will not submit to what is good unless they're made to. And you've shown us through the Word that you're not afraid of stopping them. You're not afraid of coming against them. You're not saying, well, they're not going to get a good image of who God is. You defended Israel. You defended your prophets. You defended different ones. And Father, we want to learn how can we imitate your peace through strength in the world that we live in amongst the people that we rub shoulders with. How can we change their life? And bring them to a place where the gospel will be real, where they will see the hand of God on us, and they will desire to have the things that God has put in our life. Thank you for the help that you give us to understand these principles and the boldness that puts them to work. Give you the praise and the glory for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.